everyone. Welcome to the final episode of the Tax Chick podcast for season three. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. Today, my special guest is Anissa Dewan, and I met Anissa a couple of years ago on some client files, and we've been working together for a couple of years now. And Anissa started her career in international and expatriate tax, tax law, and then transitioned to high net worth estate planning. Now she is a lawyer and wills and estates advisor for RBC Royal Trust, and she supports the Prairie Region. Anissa brings an approach to estate planning that centers on understanding and addressing the unique needs of each client when it comes to appointing a corporate executor, attorney, and or trustee. She works collaboratively with both the client and their trusted advisors to help craft a comprehensive, effective estate plan that meets their particular needs. So Anissa and I have worked together on client files where Royal Trust has been appointed as a corporate executor. And we got together and started thinking it might be helpful to do a podcast episode that talks generally about what is a corporate executor, when do you think you might need one, and what is the process? So what are the fees? When do the fees get charged? Is it more complicated to have a corporate executor? And spoiler alert, it is not. (laughs) And also we provide some extra information if you're curious to kind of dig into this topic on your own. So I'm really excited to share this chat with you. I hope it'll be enlightening. If you're an advisor and you're listening to this, hopefully it will give you some ideas of when you might want to suggest the concept of a corporate executor or corporate advisor to your clients. And if you're a business owner or an individual listening to this, you might actually realize that this might be good for your personal circumstance. So we give lots of examples of when a corporate executor is helpful, and one of those might resonate with you. So I hope this is helpful. I'm excited to share this conversation. Without further ado, on to our episode. Well, welcome, Anissa, to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. We were saying, I think it's the first time that we've like visually seen each other. We've emailed back and forth and we've we've been on the phone before, but we've never, we've certainly never been in the same space before. So it's nice to actually see your face as I'm talking to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I was, I was actually kind of excited. I think I've, you know, we've, we've gotten to know each other fairly reasonably well over the last three years, I think it is. I think so. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is great. It's nice to put a face to the, to the lovely voice on the other end of the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on and we are going to get into sort of the substantive topics, but I gave you a warning that I was going to ask you some initial questions because I've never had you on the podcast before. And so I'm excited to hear your answers. I ask all my guests these questions And so the first question is, what is the last podcast that you listened to or your favorite podcast? Okay, so this is a hard one for me because I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Um, I'm not, I don't love driving, but now that I can listen to a podcast while I drive, it's just been a game changer. Like I'm excited to go run those errands or I'll happily, you know, (laughs) make that 30 minute trip to the airport to pick up a family member because that's my, my time. So the last podcast I listened to, and I'll be honest about this, I absolutely love Smartless. I don't know if you've ever. Oh, I love Smartless. I am a regular listener, regular listener. I was trying to get through the Steve Carell episode the other night, but then I got interrupted. 
Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I haven't I haven't listened to Steve yet. Um, but I listened to Charlize Theron, so she was on there. That was a good one. That Wasn't was a good that one. A good mm-hmm. one. And I mean, those three guys, like they are just hilarious, and they seem so relatable for these big kind of you know A list Hollywood stars. They're just they're hilarious, and they're so relatable. And I feel like their conversations with their guests are so real and so raw, and it just makes me laugh. Like I I kind of chuckle continuously continuously while I listen. And then I have um, Oprah's Super Soul Conversations, kind of always a go-to when I'm feeling like I need a little bit of inspiration. Um, I always find I walk away from that feeling a little lighter um, and and more kind of just focused after I listen to one of hers. And then uh, Business Wars is another top fave of mine. I don't know if you've ever tried that one before. Someone just recommended that one to me a couple of weeks ago, so I've added it into my queue, but I haven't tried yet. So you enjoy that one as well. I do. It's okay. so great. Um, you know, whatever, they they basically look at the history between various businesses that went up head to head, you know, competitors in the marketplace, mm. if you will. So the the last one that I listened to was Gucci versus Louis Vuitton. And I found it, it's just fascinating. They're usually a series of episodes. So there's five or six parts in a series and they'll go through the history of the company and, you know, various aspects of, you know, this one was of course all about fashion, but they've got Toyota versus Honda, Adidas versus Puma, like Pepsi versus Coke. And some of them are just fascinating, like the historical context that you get behind all these really recognized brands that we kind of see and hear of every single day, or Mm -hmm. we're just inundated with all this consumerism and, and branding all the time, that it's nice to know the, the backstory, you know, what, how did they come about? What were the challenges? You know, how, how did they get to where they are today? Okay. Well, my other question is, I I don't think we've ever texted or DM'd, um, but what would be the emoji that you would use most often if you were communicating with someone? So this is really, this is a really interesting question for me because I actually did like a little scroll of my Oh, wow. Messages. You did the research. I did some research because I was very curious about this. So it's definitely like the crying, laughing face, like okay. the laugh out loud face mm-hmm. is, is very frequently used. Um, and then I would say the little love or heart emoji yes. um, is it, fairly frequently used. So those are probably my top two, the, the laugh out loud and the cry face. But since becoming a mom, 19 months ago, I find that there's been a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, a change in, in the emoji use. And now I find it's the head, it's the head slapping or the, oh, the pot, the face palm that the I'm always palm. using the face palm. Yeah. You know, I feel like anytime my kid does something, it's the face palm or like, <laughs> oh, he's sick again, face palm. Like, oh, he thinks it's hilarious to throw his food across the room, face yeah. palm. Like, yeah. So that that's the mom, the most often mom, mom used emoji. There you go. There you go. I said to somebody, I should have at the beginning of my seasons, every time I asked someone this, like put their emoji in the title of the episode. But oh, now I'm... Now I'm three seasons in and I can't, I can't go back. So I don't know. Maybe I have to start that for season four. I should have had that brilliant idea two and a half years ago. (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) Anyway, we digress. We digress. We're here today to talk about uh, corporate trusteeship, which um, if for people who are listening to this and your first thought might be, what the heck is corporate trusteeship um, and why do I care about this? And so, Anissa, you and I have worked together for, like you said, about two and a half, three years. 
uh, in your work with Royal Trust. And we do a lot of work together with clients who are working on their estate planning and who are struggling with finding someone to name as an executor of their estate mm-hmm. uh, and or struggling to find someone to act as their attorney, their power of attorney um, in connection with lifetime. And many people do not realize that there is an option outside of a family member or a friend or one of your professional advisors. The option is what we call a corporate trustee. Um, in, In your case, you're coming at this from the perspective of the Royal Trust Corporation of Canada. There are other trust corporations in Canada. Um, so the major financial institutions all have their own arm of a trust company. And, and the idea is very similar um, with each different uh, trust company. But there is this option to appoint this third party uh, to come in and step in and have that role. And I think there's a bit of a lack of information about when you might want to utilize that option and what it means to utilize the option, what it costs, and what practically happens when you die or you lose capacity and someone's been appointed. And so we thought it might be helpful to do a bit of a discussion of those big picture things today because we often have these conversations one-on-one, which is fine, but it's also helpful to get the information out into the broader community. And so maybe we'll really start with basics in terms of, you know, when would you suggest that people consider a corporate trustee, or a corporate executor in their wills. A nice place to start is dispelling that myth that many of our parents' generations had, that picking an executor is really easy. You just look at that pool of your most trusted family member or your most trusted friend and done. You know, that's the person who's going to take on the task of administering the estate. But the reality behind what an executor, what executor duties involve and and that process of estate administration involves is that a lot of thought really needs to go into choosing who the right person to act as your executor essentially should be. And a lot more consideration needs to be given to to who you're appointing um, than people actually do. And that's becoming more and more common with clients that we talk to. And I, I imagine more common with clients that you're talking to and meeting with on a daily basis. And so I think to kind of look at your question and break it down, you know, when do you need a corporate executor or attorney on a power of attorney? When should you be considering a corporate appointment versus a family member, a family friend? There's some very obvious instances that just jump to mind, you know, married couple that doesn't have any children um, or, or no trusted family member or family friend to appoint. Um, or married couple that has very young children. So, you know, they're not appointing, of course, their seven and nine-year-old daughter to do the estate administration. Um, Couple that has children that live abroad. Um, A family that has, you know, a very significant or substantial estate with a lot of complexities, maybe foreign investments, operating companies, private company shares. Um, That's often a good time. Again, these very obvious reasons of why family or one of their trusted advisors would say, hey, have you thought about using a corporate executor or professional trust company to manage your estate when you pass on? But some kind of lesser looked at reasons, if you will, or, or considerations that are um, you know, made and when you're choosing the right executor is 
really choosing someone that's objective and choosing someone that's level-headed. And if you Google, you know, what are the top qualities in an executor? Those are often listed in many articles that people come across, well, objective and level-headed. And then they say, okay, well, hey, sure, like I'm just going to pick my best friend or I'm going to pick my my brother. But I mean, objective, a family member or family friend may still have an interest in what's happening in the estate. So that objectivity does suffer a little bit. Um, the level-headed piece of that. Well, if you've got a family member or a close family friend that is now expected to take on this very time-consuming, very burdensome task of doing the estate administration at a time when they're mourning your loss or going through a, a, you know, a pattern of grief, it's like trying to see clearly with this mental fog is what I've heard grief described as. I haven't lost a parent yet or a close family member, but I can only imagine how difficult that would be. And so that objectivity and that level-headedness, two kind of top qualities in an executor, if you will, go out the window. So who's mm-hmm. left? And then, you know, there are the other considerations. Does the person have adequate financial acumen? Do they know there are there are tax decisions to be made? There are investments decisions to be made? There's real estate property to potentially value and sell. Do they have that financial acumen? Can they produce adequate accounting records for beneficiaries who may ask, et cetera. Um, You know, is there good attention to detail on this kind of thing? Is that person a good project manager, if you will? Do, do, you know, does the person, can you find somebody that's a little bit younger than you to act is another question. Of course, you pick your friend who's the same age at, you know, same-ish age as, as you. Well, when you're in your 70s or 80s, that person might likely be at an advanced stage in their life and may not want to take on, um, you know, the role of the executor. And the last thing when people consider corporate executorship trustee is when they look at their family members and their family friends and their trusted group of people around them, they say, you know, does this person actually have the desire and the time to act? I think the going statistic is, is that it often takes 100 plus hours to administer an estate. We're finding as professional as a professional trust company that it is taking upwards of two years to settle, you know, very straightforward estates because some of the time lags involved in some of the nuanced processes that a state administration has to go through. Um, so does the person have the time and the inclination to act? If you've answered in your mind kind of question mark to any of these qualities that I've listed, that's a pretty good reason to consider the use of a corporate executorship because it is, it's a, it's a very time consuming task that involves a lot of work and a lot of attention to detail. And this question about who's the right person to be my executor is, is, you know, is actually a very important question and sets the stage for the whole process of estate administration and really has the ability to, I believe, um, both financially benefit your estate in that, you know, you're not losing money because things are being done correctly. Things are being done efficiently. Estate administration is plugging along. No deadlines are being missed. No, for example, tax filing penalties have to be paid because a tax filing deadline hasn't been missed on the estate. And then from a family perspective, having sometimes, you know, someone outside who can do the work, a neutral third party that has complete objectivity, helps to maintain a lot of that family harmony and dynamic 
one sibling is not slogging away while the other three are getting a nice big payout. Um, or one family member isn't upset at the actions of another family member, etc. So just maintaining this family harmony and, and, and you know, essentially having that finance, having that comfort of knowing that you've got a trusted, detached, neutral third party that are experts in what they do doing the estate administration, it's that lifting of burden, which is really a huge goal, that peace of mind and family harmony of appointing a corporate executor. I was nodding and then I realized we're not recording the video, so nobody will see me nodding, but (laughs) I completely agree with you. And I think that there's a bit of a misunderstanding about when you appoint someone as executor, um, there's no requirement to actually have them agree. Like they don't sign anything saying, yes, I'm going to act. And then also it's important to remember that when you appoint someone, they might decide not to act at the time that you pass away. They might what we call renounce their executorship and you could be left without an executor in your estate if you haven't thought things through. And I find a lot of my clients have a bit of an assumption that, well, I've appointed them, they have to do it. No, actually they don't. And and so you don't want to leave your estate kind of with a hole in it um, and, and a bit of a mess for your family. And I think also there's been an increased question, at least I'm noticing in my office, about, well, if I appoint child A, can I pay them something for doing mm-hmm. this job? And that's fine. You can. You can set fees in your wills. Um, alternatively, there are processes in the courts across the country to seek an executor fee. But you have to be really careful about that because if you have three children and you've appointed one as executor and you haven't appointed the other two and you're paying that one and you're not paying the other two and that one makes decisions that might be in line with your will but the other two perhaps don't agree with – Even if you have a family that's in full harmony right now while you're both alive, Mm -hmm. you actually might create disharmony by the appointment that you've made. If you have a blended family, um, key reason to name someone. Um, The other one I've I've often mentioned is if you have long-term dependency issues where you're going to have these long-term trusts for for children who are going to continue to be dependent past the age of 18, great option um, to have a trustee named in that instance. Or also, you know, you had mentioned about outside jurisdiction. So if you've got assets in the States and you've got assets overseas, um, it's complex. And and even if you just own a condo in Florida, I mean, that's still a condo in Florida. That's a different jurisdiction. There's different filings that are required. So, you know, your poor executor is going to have to figure that out. And when you have a corporate trustee, well, they do this all the time. They don't have to figure it out. They know exactly what to do. So it's not just reserved for the millionaires and the gajillionaires. Um, It's really, I mean, you need to have a certain amount of assets to make it make sense. But it's also situational, not so much just asset-based. It's those, you know, it's very common in in our time now for people to have that home, even in BC. So even out of province, you know, mm-hmm. you have a summer home on the coast um, or many clients have property in Mexico or Arizona where they leave the brutal frigid winters of the prairies um, to head off somewhere warm. And, you know, not a lot of thought or consideration is given to, well, who's going to manage that asset when I pass? Who's going to file the foreign taxes on that asset? Who's going to communicate with the authorities? Does the individual that you're appointing have the time or inclination? The really nice part, like you mentioned, Amanda, about the corporate executor is we've likely seen it and done it before. And we know Mm -hmm. exactly who to call, what to do, and how to get it done. 
And so again, it's that it's that peace of mind, knowing that with the corporate executorship, you're really putting in place a plan for a, a professional who knows exactly what to do. Absolutely. And so so I guess if if somebody's sitting back and, and they've thought to themselves, hey, I, I think I fit into a few of those categories, I want to explore this more. Um, usually I'll get a call from a client because they don't want to phone the bank first. They, they want to phone me because they're not really sure what they're getting into. So they phone me, and which is hilarious because <laughs> I charge them for that conversation, but the bank will not. And right. so they phone me and they say, okay, we're thinking about this, but like, what does this mean? So can we talk a little bit about the process of appointment? Because I, I think that's shrouded in mystery as well in terms of what's involved, what the cost is to the client for the appointment process and, and kind of what role you as a, you would play um, in that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad that you kind of led with that because it is, it's just, it seems like a very um, complex, very expensive, very time consuming process, but I'd like to dispel the myth that it's not. Um, So let's look at complexity. It's really, it's it's as easy as getting in in touch with a member of the Royal Trust team. We set up a complimentary consultation with a potential client that's exploring corporate executorship. And in that conversation, we talk to them directly about we as a trust company would do. So it's that initial meeting. In that meeting, we go over the fees in very, very, um, you know, clear detail. There's a lot of transparency around the fee conversation. And so, again, to give the client and to arm the potential client with all of the information they need before they decide they're going to appoint a corporate executor. So that's the first step, an initial conversation with a member of the trust company. That's what we do here at Royal Trust where we talk the client through our services and we talk them through our fees. And then if the client expresses some interest with proceeding, we then as Royal Trust and and what my office would do and, and our members of the team do is we would offer to reach out to the client's drafting lawyer on their behalf to say, you know, Amanda, I might send you an email to say, I met with Mr. and Mrs. Smith last week, and they're looking to appoint Royal Trust as a corporate executor on their estate planning documents. Here's the information that we require from Royal Trust side. And then you'd build that into the will document. We'd ask for the opportunity to review the will so that we can make sure that we can act on all the instructions that have been put in the will. And if we need any clarification, we get that clarification, you know, upfront from the clients while they're still alive and they're still here to tell us what their wishes are. And then the file is created once we receive documents that has our name on them. Now, one really nice aspect about the process of appointing a corporate executor is that, you know, as I mentioned, it's not very complicated. It's actually very easy and very straightforward once the client decides that they want to go ahead and they have all the information. The other thing about the process is that there is no fees um, with Royal Trust. And I, I'm, I'm not sure how many of the other trust companies work, but I imagine that it may be a similar process. I can speak specifically to Royal Trust practices. There's no fees upfront for appointing a corporate executor. So the fees that are charged for our services, let's say for corporate executor or corporate trustee or corporate attorney under power of attorney, are only charged if and when we're ever appointed to act. 
What is done in, in the legal documents is a positive appointment of a trust company and an agreement to compensate us in line with a set fee agreement, should we ever be appointed to act. So it's almost a, a, a free insurance policy, if you will. You've got a professional that's there to do the work. They don't get paid until we're actually called upon to act. And I think that's a that's a very important piece that the reason why this fee agreement is being signed is that you're kind of locking in fees at the current rate for somebody as opposed to this unknown of, oh, when I die, what will the fee be? Um, you're, you're saying, no, it's going to be this. And I know I've had conversations with you before where if, if for some reason, like, the fees went down between the time that someone signed a fee agreement and later, I mean, you're not going to hold them to higher fees. You, you want to be supportive of the client. And also typically with most of the trust companies I've worked with, if you have um, certain assets under investment with that particular financial institution, there's usually a, a bit of a discounted rate or something that applies to those. So when you're trying to decide which trust company to go to, I usually first ask, do you have a relationship with a particular financial institution? Because that's usually a great place to start. But none of those fees get paid until you're actually appointed. And, and I think to go along with that, it's okay for the client to change their mind later because clients mm -hmm. think they're locked in. Yes. They think, okay, well, this is it. I've made this decision. I'm stuck with this for the rest of eternity. No, you're not. Um, so if your life circumstances change or your estate, you know, maybe you liquidate everything and it's just cash. And now you, it is a little bit easier to deal with things or you switch institutions or something else happens in your life. It's not that once you've appointed, you're stuck. There is yes. that flexibility to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's no financial penalty to yes. making that change, which is really nice and, and is very comforting for clients, especially because, you know, it's very difficult when you're thinking about estate planning and you're looking at the next 10, 15, 20 years, you know, you've got maybe young kids or you've got kids in their 20s and 30s and you're wondering what they're going to be like in 10 or 15 years and what their circumstances are going to be. And, and you're wondering, you know, maybe they'll want to do the role. Maybe they'll want to act as my executor. Maybe they won't want to pay a corporate executor. Maybe right now my estate is very complicated because I've got an operating business and I've got some foreign properties and I own a bunch of real estate. But my plan as I get closer to retirement is to liquidate everything and live a very simple life and sell my company and retire early, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The nice thing about, you know, that corporate executorship piece is, is that it's not set in stone. And when a change is made, if a change is made, it's as simple as just reaching out to the trust company and letting us know that you're updating your documents and you're no longer appointing Royal Trust or, or whichever trust company you're choosing to work with. And then we, or, or getting pushed down the line. We're, we're very happy to update our records. We wish you all the best. There's no awkward conversations. Mm -hmm. We don't send you a bill or an invoice or anything <laughs> of that nature. 
No, that's absolutely correct. And I think also people think that they have to just appoint Royal Trust. So, I mean, or or TD Canada Trust or whichever trust company it is. I mean, if you can still appoint your spouse as first executor, for example, and you can have the trust company as an alternate, or you can have somebody else listed in there and then the trust company as an alternate. You can have them as a co-executor. And the actual process from the lawyer's perspective, um, I think there's this assumption that, oh, this is going to really increase the complexity. Mm-hmm. Well, all the trust companies I've worked with have a set um, set of clauses that they require be included in the documents that they give you in a lovely word format, which you then just include in your will and you can walk through the, through that with the client. And then there's the fee agreement, which if it hasn't already been signed, will get signed with you and just gets attached to the document. But it's not like you're adding 20 pages or 20 documents to the mix. It is not that complicated. And then I know that that also Royal Trust and, and many of the other trust companies sometimes like to hold the original document if they're named, um, just so they have easy access to it, which I find a lot of my clients actually quite like because it's one less thing they have to deal with. They have right. their, their copy. You guys have the original you ha- they have all your contact information as to how to get it back if they want to. As you've said, there's no hard feelings right. if they contact you and say right. they want it back. It's really clean. Um, and is. the client walks away with a clean clean process but without having all the obligations. And I think as well, I find sometimes as the lawyer, I'm the lone voice that is saying, okay, we need to start gathering information now right. while you're alive and while you're still here. Let's start making lists of things. Where are your accounts at? What are the advisors you're working with? And I often get some pushback of, well, I don't need to do that. Like, why are you asking me to do that? Well, what's nice with the trust company is that you guys are asking too. And so you've got these wonderful forms that actually we can be filling out as we're working through the instructions with the client. And we'll often have half of it filled out just by the first meeting. It's, It's really easy. So then again, there's already that starting point. There's that that document that's there without much extra work for the client. And so it is really a very simple process. And I usually have clients walk out of my office after they sign and they'll say, wow, that was easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought that was going to be way more time and effort. I thought I was going to get a bunch of sales pitches and that's not what it is. And, and maybe that's a very good segue into our final topic because we've talked a lot about the appointment process. But I think it would be helpful to talk about, and maybe we should stick to just death in this instance as opposed to Mm -hmm. the power of attorney because I think that's its own discussion. But when someone dies and Royal Trust is the the name, the first name that's then available for appointment, what happens from from sort of your perspective? Because I only see it after the trust company has agreed to act. That's usually when I hear about it. So it's actually, again, really simple and really straightforward. We have what we call, or I like to refer to almost a a reverse engagement procedure. So essentially the client works with their lawyer, you know, they have, they may have an initial meeting with Royal Trust where they determine, yep, we'd like to go ahead. They work with their lawyer like yourself, they get their documents drafted. Their lawyer then sends all the documents over to Royal Trust We now see that Mr. and Mrs. Smith have appointed Royal Trust as corporate executor. We then turn around and send a welcome package to the clients that have appointed us. 
Um, and it is, it's essentially a letter um, with all of the contact information for Royal Trust. We confirm that, you know, we've been appointed and in what capacity, whether we're acting jointly with another family member, whether we're acting alone, whether we're in a backup position. So, you know, husband and wife are acting for each other and then Royal Trust is going to step in. So whatever capacity that we're appointed in, we lay that out in the letter. We put information in that letter about where the original documents are stored and the client received receives a package from Royal Trust that has contact information for our office. In addition to that, we produce little wallet cards for the clients that they can, you know, pop into their wallet, pop into their safety deposit box. Some clients I've heard keep, you know, keep one in the car. If the client makes prepaid funeral arrangements, they might give give a copy to their funeral home to say, I've appointed a corporate executor. Here's their contact information. These little wallet cards have our contact details and our 1-800 number, which is continuously monitored. So I believe it's monitored 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, There's not always a live person to pick up the phone. But during business hours, of course, there is. And our turnaround time is 24 to 48 hours once we receive notification of death. So what we say to clients is, please share with your family, friends, your family members, or, you know, stick this card in your wallet, put it up on the fridge. So when you pass away, Royal Trust will get a call because the card says, I have appointed Royal Trust as my corporate executor. Call this number. When that number is called, right away, that family or that estate is connected with a team of individuals that then follows that estate from day one, right up until the very end, right up until the very last asset in that estate is distributed. And that's the process. That's what happens when a person dies. Essentially, we get a call from a family member, a family friend, a child, a sibling, a trusted advisor that knows Royal Trust was appointed, the funeral home, the doctor's office, anyone that the client has told that they've appointed corporate ex- a corporate executor. And if they haven't told anyone, someone's looking through their important papers or looking through their wallet and they find that little card, they give us a call and we immobilize within 24 to 48 hours. Well, and I think that's important because There is a bit of, I think, a general assumption amongst the public that when you're calling a bank, you don't get a person. Like people want a person. And so, you know, you have to understand there's this 1-800 number and there's not going to be a person necessarily if you're calling at 10 o'clock at night. Um, But then you're going to get a person. And then you have a person and a team of people that are now your points of contact going forward. It is not a faceless organization. And that's really important because I've seen clients on the back end who visibly relax when they see there's actually an individual that's involved. And it's not so much that, and maybe you can speak to this, but it's not so much that you guys come in, kick everybody else out, say, we're not telling you what's going on, get out of our business, um, and just start divvying up assets and getting rid of things. Can you talk a bit about how that works? I think people are worried about that. Oh, goodness. I mean, I would be, you know, um, Mm -hmm. if this was one of my parents and they'd appointed a corporate executor, what I can assure people of is that it's a very collaborative approach between the executor and the family that's left behind in that the family, if not appointed, isn't expected to do any work, but our, our team would reach out to them, you know, very quickly to introduce themselves 
oftentimes now kind of coming out of the pandemic, the formats of meetings have changed more and more are happening face to face, but there would be a meeting with interested parties, the, the families, the beneficiaries, um, whereby the executor would share, you know, what the next six months, eight months, 12 months, you know, year or two years looked like, what the timelines would be, what the executor's roles and responsibilities are, um, you know, what they're, what they're looking to do. They would, they would request or, or ask the family if they had any insight that they wanted to share. You know, if the, if the trust company was being tasked with making funeral arrangements, we collaborate with the family on how that would work. So it's a very communicative process. There's, um, you know, and, and as we kind of keep going back to, there's these live people that become contacts for the family family members, family friends, interested parties in the estate, they can pick up the phone and call their estate advisor that's assigned to their estate and say, you know, hey, where are we at with X, Y, and Z? And they have a live person Mm -hmm. relaying that information back and forth. I almost like to refer to it in the estate world as a bit of a concierge service. You've got your estate Mm. concierge that's at your beck and call um, that you can pick up the phone and call at any point ask for an update, ask for a statement of account. I mean, assuming you're an interested party in the estate and you have the, uh-huh. um, you know, the legal ability to receive this information, you, that information is available and we're very open to sharing and communicating with family and beneficiaries. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful summary and I hope that helps some people who are listening because that's a real concern. Um, And I think that's one of the main barriers sometimes to those types of appointments is is that people still want to be involved and and they don't want um, they don't want some faceless corporation coming in and taking over, and that's not what's happening here. So I really appreciate that summary. I know too that you've given me some great links, which we'll include in the show notes. Um, could you maybe um, describe some of the some of the resources that are sort of available that we'll be we'll be providing the listeners? Yes, absolutely. So one of the resources is just, you know, uh, it'll be a link to our landing page, the RBC Royal Trust landing page. There is a wealth of information um, on our website about, you know, the types of things that individuals need to be looking at when they're considering corporate executorship. What are the questions that you need to be asking? We have, um, Royal Trust has a very unique um, and very successful partnership with David Chilton, Um, best known for his book, The Wealthy Barber. Um, And he does a series of just hilarious two to three minute videos, which are all available on the Royal Trust website um, that really kind of you know, bring bring to the forefront a lot of these questions that people have about who to choose and what executorship looks like and what are the types of questions that I need to be asking myself. He does some hilarious interviews with his, you know, father. Um, I believe he's got um, um, the Island of Brian, the the home and garden oh, TV yes, yes, couple. Yes, yeah. yeah, Brian and Sarah, I think, are, are on there as guests. And so he's just got a lot of, you know, funny, lighthearted insight, but a lot of great resources uh, for, for individuals that are 
exploring corporate executor services. And then what I would like to quickly highlight, Amanda, is something that Royal Trust recently launched. Um, We launched a web tool called Artie the Executor Helper. And essentially what it is, it's a completely complimentary web-based tool. So for someone who is acting as executor, they can access this tool and there's a wealth of information, a document library, some checklists for potential executors who are going to be acting. And that is, again, a completely complimentary tool. Um, The clients do not have to be affiliated with RBC or Royal Trust in any manner, but, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. We really want people to have the right information and to have good information. So we'll put links to all of that, um, you know, up for 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 the the listeners to be able to access if they're interested. I love the RD tool. Um, I've sent that to a number of clients before. I, I quite like it because uh, I think being an executor, you don't quite realize what you've gotten into until you're in the middle of it. And um, once you've done it once, usually you never want to do it again. Um, And so there's not really this place that you can go that says, here's what happens when you become an executor. And there's a lot of misinformation. So it's great to have um, a free resource that is, you know, not necessarily a court resource or a government resource um, to be able to go to, to get some information. So that's a great one. I, I really appreciate you sharing this information with us and sharing these resources with us. And I hope that our conversation was helpful to some listeners who might have been on the fence or just a bit confused as to to what this all means and, and when they should be considering it. So thank you so much for, for coming on today and sharing your knowledge and uh, your time with me. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure. And I think you and I both share that we are, you know, passionate about this area. And first and foremost, it's it's making sure that people are guided to make the right decisions and the best decisions for themselves and their family and friends and the people that leave, they leave behind. Um, so, you know, the, the more information and knowledge that we can arm people with, the better. So I'm very, I'm very pleased to have done this um, podcast with you today. And thank you so much for including me. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick, And follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.